You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them there. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, verses 14 to 21. Continuing to study through the book of Ephesians, chapter by chapter and book by book. If, if you're new to our church, on uh, Sunday mornings we go through the New Testament, um, and on Wednesday nights we go through the Old Testament. And as we're making our way through the new, we're here in the book of Ephesians, and um, we've, we've learned that the book of Ephesians can be divided up into three sections. The wealth of the believer, the walk of the believer, and the warfare of the believer. And we are about to finish that first section, which is the wealth of the believer. In reality, uh, even a simpler outline would be you can divide the book of Ephesians right down the middle. Chapters 1 through 3 deal with what Jesus did for us. The blessings we have in Christ. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul said, We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's what it's all about. Who Christ is in us, who we are in Christ. That's what we've been learning as we've been studying this first section, the wealth. The second section, if you want to break it in half, would be chapters 4 through 6. And it deals with what we do for Him. That is our response. Because... You guys, He first loved us. We respond to Him. He's the initiator. And that's how Paul always deals with our walk with the Lord. First He tells us what He did for us. Then He says, okay, now here's what you can do for Him. And we're going to start that section next week, chapter 4. He says, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. In light of all of the things that we've learned thus far, I beseech you. To walk worthy of those things. And man, we're going to learn a lot of stuff practically over the next several weeks as we look at chapters 4 through 6. We're going to see how to be better husbands and wives, how to be better parents, how to be better employees and employers, and, and even how to be better children. There's, there's a lot of great practical information that we're going to learn, but the first thing we've seen is what Jesus has done for us. See, that's where it starts. When we understand who we are in Christ, man, the response is so much easier when we understand all that He has done for us. And so this morning, we're going to close our study of the first section of Ephesians. This first section where Paul talks about our wealth. And Paul closes this section with a prayer. This is the second of two prayers in Ephesians. The first one was found in chapter 1, starting in verse 15. And Paul prayed that we might understand all that God has done for us. That we could sort of get our mind around all that Jesus has done. That we've been adopted and we've been blessed and we've been forgiven and we've been redeemed. And all these things that he talked about in chapter 1, he says, Man, I just want you to be able to get your little mind around that. And now, Paul says, Okay, We've talked all about that. We've seen our wealth. And now I want you to be able to have the tools to appropriate and implement those truths into your life so that you might live it out. The reality of Christianity. And we talk about that a lot. Because you know what? There's a lot of facades in the church. There's a lot of phoniness. There's a lot of, man, I'm doing great. And we ask people, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. And in reality, man, they're doing horrible. And Jesus said, you, you come near me with your mouth, but your hearts are far from me. 
And we want it to be real. And if I had one prayer for our church, it's that our relationship with Jesus would be real. That we're not coming here as like a social club. We're not coming here to look good, to impress people, tote our Bible around when we never read the thing any other time during the week, and, and to just put on a show. My prayer is that we would be real. That we would have real relationships with Jesus. That He would be real in our hearts. And that's what Paul Praise for these Ephesian believers. That they could understand who they are in Christ and that those truths would begin to work themselves out into their life. That they would have the tools and the resources to do that. And you know what? I'm always blown away by the prayers of the Bible. When you read the prayers of the Bible, it really should make you stop and think about your own prayers. Because oftentimes our prayers are very self-centered. They're very earthly-minded. But the prayers of the Bible are often other-centered and very heavenly-minded. They're not about, you know, getting this or getting that or help me here and, and give me what I want. It's about knowing God. It's about heavenly things. And, and this prayer is just that. And so, as we make our way through our text this morning, Ephesians three fourteen through 21 I want us to, to notice three things. We're going to divide this prayer into three sections. First, the introduction to the prayer, then the heart of the prayer, and then the conclusion to the prayer. So we'll read this prayer, we'll read this section, our text, and then we'll go back and we'll see how it applies to our life. Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, as we come to Your Word again, God, it's with hearts that want to hear from You. Lord, may we not be hearers only, but doers of Your Word. Make these truths real in our life. God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the first section, the first division, the introduction to the prayer. The first thing we see is, why is Paul praying? He says, for this reason. Now, this is interesting because if you're like me, you probably have a tendency to have your mind wander when you're praying. Do you do, you do that? Because I do. Maybe I'll be praying for my mom and then all of a sudden I start to think of you know the house I grew up in. And maybe I start to think of you know that neighbor kid that was annoying. And I think about the time that I beat that neighbor kid up. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking about high school and I'm thinking about my first car and breaking down all the, all the time. And 
And it's like 10 minutes later, it's like, whoa, what was going on? And, and it's like, oh, I was praying for my mom. And there, there I went. And I think that's what happens with Paul. Because in verse 14, he says, for this reason. But if you back up to verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, for this reason. I really think that Paul intended to start praying right there. But then he went off on this kind of rabbit trail about the Jews and the Gentiles. And then he's like, okay, back to the prayer. For this reason. And the reason is, is because of all that God has done for us. And mainly in light of the context here, that the gospel has been opened up to everybody. You see, not just Jew, but Gentile alike. Everyone has the opportunity to come to Christ. And, and Paul was, was sort of arrested with that understanding because the Ephesians were Gentiles. And he's writing to them, and it's like, wow, you guys are saved. You're saints. As he introduces the letter, he called them saints. They're believers. And he's saying, look, I want these things to be real to you. Here's what I want God to do in your life. In light of the fact that you know Him. And he begins to pray for them. And so we see why he's praying for this reason. We also see how he's praying as he says, I bow my knees. And Paul says he bowed his knees, which we sort of read that and we think, yeah, that's how you pray. You bow your knees. I mean, when somebody's really praying, they bow. I mean, that's, that's real prayer. That's don't bother them kind of prayer. But the Jews really didn't pray that way. They typically prayed standing with head and eyes raised and with hands outstretched, which I love how Gail Irwin describes that. He says they really expected to receive something from God when they prayed. It's like they were looking up in expectation. Their hands were outstretched like, Lord, I want to catch whatever it is you want to give us. Give me. We kind of pray differently than that. Almost like we're scared that God's going to give us something. You know, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Like, oh Lord, I'm terrified to death, but do what you want to do. And, and I'm not saying that's a bad way to pray because, you know, when I see people pray with their eyes open, I kind of think, are they even really engaged in this? You know, but it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if our heads are bowed or our eyes are closed, how our posture is. But this posture that Paul takes up was not typical of prayer at that time. But he says, I bowed because he was showing them the submission that he had to the Lord. It was very rare that a Jew would bow in prayer, but it, it did happen. You can see Solomon bowing in prayer at the dedication of the temple. And, and you can see other instances of, of bowing in prayer throughout the Bible, but it was rare. And you can just imagine Paul bowing, being chained to this prison guard. You wonder what that prison guard was thinking. You know, as Paul's like writing these letters and bowing and praying and talking to himself and sharing with the guy. I mean, that must have been an interesting, interesting conversation that they would have together. But Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father. He's showing the submission that he has to the Lord. You see, the posture is not so important because we can bow and really not be submitting to God at all. It's the posture of our heart. And posture has been an important theme in Ephesians. We've seen that we're dead in our sins, so our posture is like we're dead. We're laying down in a coffin. We're dead. We've seen that we've been raised with Christ. Uh, we, we've been seated with Christ. In other words, the work is done. We're seated with Him. Paul speaks of our walk with the Lord. 
He speaks that we stand against the schemes of the devil in chapter 6. And here Paul says he's bowing. He's bowing and it speaks of submission. Psalm 23, that, that famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. Literally what that means is, my master is my owner. And you see, we like that picture, you know, of like the, the shepherd and, and he's walking some, some sheep across a, a green meadow and it's all peaceful and it's tranquil and it's beautiful. But it always, it wasn't always that way. The shepherd had to discipline the sheep. The shepherd at times would have to seek out an erring sheep and he would break its legs or leg and he would put it on his shoulders and he would restore that sheep. A shepherd would have to at times discipline the sheep with the rod. He would direct the sheep with the staff. And David said, your rod, it comforts me. See, the discipline of God is something we don't like to talk about, but it certainly is wrapped up in this idea of the fact that the Lord is my shepherd, that He's my master, that He's my God. He's my owner, my master, my owner. Are we bowing to the Lord? Not necessarily physically with our posture, although I think there are times where that's a good thing to do. But are we bowing before the Lord with our lives? Like we sang this morning, that you're the king of all of me. See, that's easy to say. And there are so many platitudes that we say with worship in the words that are written there. And I always think, Lord, I want that to be real in my life. I don't want to just say that. I want you to be the king of all of me. Is he? Is he the king of all of your life? Well, the third thing we see under this introduction to the prayer is who he's praying to. We've seen why he's praying, or we've seen how he's praying, and then we see who he's praying to, and he says to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And so he's praying to the Father, and he appeals to the fatherhood of God. Now, that verse, that phrase, 15, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, basically what that means is that God is the quintessential Father. He is the source from which all other fathers get their characteristics that is in the positive sense of being a father. Now, if you're like me, you had a father who was basically a sperm donor. That's basically what my father was. He, he, he brought me into this world, but he did nothing else. He was not a father to me. He would call me about every five years and apologize that I hadn't heard from him and apologize that he didn't keep any of his promises. And then he would make a whole bunch of other promises. And then he would drink himself into a stupor for the next five years and I might hear from him again in five years. That was, that was my dad. That was my father. But he's really not a father. And bringing kids into the world does not make you a father. A father is one who loves who guides, who disciplines his children, who's there for them, who makes promises to them that he intends to keep. And all of those things are true of our Heavenly Father. And Paul appeals to this Heavenly Father. And he's, he's basically saying to us, you know what, you may have not had a very good earthly father, but you have an amazing Heavenly Father. 
And he's also saying to us fathers here this morning, learn from me. If you want to be a good father, here's how you do it. Pattern yourself after God. And we're going to fall short of that for sure. But those are the characteristics that we ought to have in our life as fathers. And so the introduction to the prayer, and Paul moves on to the heart of the prayer, which is really the contents of the prayer. Here we find four requests, verses 16 to 19. Four things that Paul prays for, which are totally different than the things that we often pray for. He doesn't pray for a nicer car or a bigger house. He doesn't pray that they would all be healed of their diseases. He prays for four things. The first thing is strength. Verse 16. That He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Strength. It's something that we need. We need strength. We need might. We need power. But you know what? We try to find that in the wrong places so often. And what Paul says to us here through this prayer is that strength and might and power, literally this word here, might, is dunamis. And Greek scholars tell us that we get our English word dynamite from that word. I don't know if that's true or not, but it makes a great illustration that this is the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. And we have that at our disposal. That He would strengthen us with power. And it only comes from one place, that's the Spirit. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that when the Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. Same word. Dunamis power. That you might what? Speak in tongues? That you might you know, run around the church and, and, and bark like a dog? That that you might roll in the aisle, or that you might be able to pray really cool prayers, that you might be able to to sound really awesome to your Christian friends? No. He says that you might receive power to be my witnesses. That word is is martyr, basically, in the Greek. It, It means to lay your life down. That we would receive power to be a submitted believer of Jesus Christ. To be one who says, my life is not my own. To be one that says, Jesus, take me and use me. I want to be your witness. I want to take the gospel to people that need it. Whether it be across the street or across the world. I'm yours. Use me as you will. But I need your power. I need your strength. We can't do it on our own. We can't go to a seminar. You can't go to a revival meeting to receive that. It can only come from the Spirit. And I also love that it happens in one place. This strength is in the inner man. It says, strengthen you with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Now, we try to strengthen the outer man a lot. We go to the gym. We try to build our bodies. And, and you know, the Bible says that that has some profit. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, the Lord showed me a long time ago that I'm just not to be a part of gyms. It's just, you know, he, he made, it was just like revealed to me in a vision. Just don't even go in. They're bad, you know. So I've obeyed and, and, and here I am. He's also told me that I don't have to eat vegetables. And the list goes on and on, really, of the things that I'm, 
you know, supposed to do. But, and, and that's why I look the way I do. No, I don't think the Lord revealed that to me, but, uh, it, it is justification. But we do try to strengthen our, our outer man a lot, don't we? The, in fact, all these reality shows are all about strengthening your outer man. I, extreme makeover face edition, you know? It's like, uh, just take this, this sagging, sad thing and we're gonna make it look great. I mean, you see these actors and actresses and, and, you know, you know, Joan Collins, she's like a hundred. But she looks like 40. It's like, what in the world is going on here? But some of it doesn't work out so great for them. Michael Jackson is a good example of just, you know, uh, there's, there's too much of a good thing, I guess. And, you know, it just does not look right. But we try to strengthen our, our outer man. And you know what? They could do a pretty good job. You remember that show, The Swan, where they, they took, you know, I mean... They're beautiful creations of God, don't get me wrong, but I mean, these, these ladies that, you know, needed some help, and they made them look amazing. And, and like, you know, and they had to work hard too. Um, but it was, it was a pretty cool show. But it's all about the outer man. It's all about strengthening the outer man. And we can do that in a number of ways. There's, you know, shows like What Not to Wear where you can learn how to, you know, not wear baggy t-shirts and sweats all the time. Um, but it's all about the outer man. But Paul says, look, this strength that I want you to receive, that I want you to have, it's in the inner man. And only God can do that. Only God can change a heart. See, that's His sole responsibility. He can't delegate that off to somebody else. He alone can change your heart. And we have to appeal to Him. And I love that Paul says that it would be according to His riches. That He would grant you according to His riches. Not out of His riches, but according to them. You see, if Bill Gates gave you out of His riches, He could give you a $100 million. It would be a lot of money. I'll take it. But it would be out of His riches because He's worth billions. But if Bill Gates gave you according to his riches, he would say, look, everything I have is yours. It's at your disposal. Take whatever you want. And that's what God has said to us. Everything I have is yours. Everything is available to you. We've been given everything we need for a life of godliness, Peter tells us. There's no excuse. There's a lot of excuses that we like to use to busy I'm tired. I got little kids. All these things that we say. But the reality is there is no excuse. Because as I said a couple weeks ago, we are as close to Jesus as we want to be. It's the bottom line. We're as close to Him as we want to be. And if you're not close to Him this morning, if you're not being strengthened in your inner man, it's because you don't want to be. And you've got to come to that realization. You've got to come to that point where you say, you know what? That's true. I'm as close to Him as I want to be. And if I'm not close to Him, it's because I don't want to be. Because everything is at our disposal. We just have to to dig in. Paul says, man, I want you to be strengthened. A second thing that Paul prays for is depth in verse 17. Now you won't find the word depth here, but that's totally what he's praying for. Is depth. 
He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And so the second thing that Paul prays for is depth. Have you ever heard the saying that, that a lot of Christians are a mile wide, but only an inch deep? And what that means is, man, we've got a lot of stuff going. We're wide in our influence. And churches can be that way as well. There's, there's lots of programs. There's lots of things going on. It looks impressive from, from the outside. And we think, man, that is, that is awesome. But you begin to dig away at the surface and you find that you're very, very shallow. And is that true in your life where, man, you are, you're wide, but you're very shallow. And Paul says, man, I want you to be deep. I want you to have a deep relationship with Jesus. And he uses three metaphors to bring this home. Three things he says I want to be true in your life. The first is dwell. He says that Christ would dwell in your hearts. Now that word dwell, it basically means to make your home in. And Paul is saying, I want Jesus to make His home in your heart. And if you're a believer, that's already true. The Bible says that He's, he's come into your life, He's come into your heart, and, and that word inner man that we looked at in the previous verse, that basically means the place that God dwells. We call it our heart, we call it our spirit, we call it our soul, but it's that eternal aspect of our life. Paul says that our outward man is is perishing, but our inward man is being renewed day by day. That's what he's talking about. And he says, man, I want Jesus to make his home there. I want him to be comfortable there. I want him to, to send down roots into your life. I don't want him to be like just setting up a tent. I want him to, to be at home in your heart. And it's kind of like the difference between renting a house or buying a house. When you rent a house, you know you should take care of it. You're, you're kind of there, but you know I'm not going to live here forever. I'm not going to dump a bunch of money into a house that isn't mine. But when you buy a house, man, this is mine. I'm paying toward this. I own it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paint it and I'm going to keep it nice. I'm going to put in new characteristics to the home to make it better. And that's what Paul is, is saying is that, look, I want... Jesus to make His home in you. Not a rental type of existence, but an ownership type of existence. Is Jesus comfortable in our life? Is He comfortable there? He's there if you're a believer. If you're not a believer this morning, I would challenge you to think about your place with Jesus and where you're at with Him. But if you're a believer, Jesus is in your life, but is He comfortable there? And I think if we all had God search our hearts, we'd say, man, there's some things, there's some thoughts, there's some actions, there's some habits in my life that are not pleasing to the Lord that are not making Him comfortable in my life. You know, the other day, I told Andrea, I said, I don't even like to eat in our dining room. It's just not comfortable. The The... The walls are this, it's a nice color, but it's like this really dark red, champagne red. And, 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 and then we have this fancy furniture and we have doilies and china. And it looks great. I mean, it looks like it could be a museum. I mean, it's, it's nice. 
but I don't want to eat in there. I'd rather eat out in the living room with like a TV tray and a TV dinner than eat in there because it's just not that comfortable. And so she's like, well, what do we need to do? And maybe we could paint, you know, a couple of the walls different and maybe we can bring in some greenery, you know, um, to, to kind of soften it a little bit. And, you know, I, I think they call that, and it's like this, this weird kind of new agey thing, but I think they call that like feng shui, like, you know, you, you've got to be comfortable in your surroundings, right? And that's a big thing. That's a buzzword. You watch HDTV, which my wife, I'll have Sports Center on, and I can guarantee you if my wife comes in within a minute, we're changing the channel to HGTV or the Food Network. And I actually kind of enjoy the show, so it's kind of a little bit of a trade-off. But I have not gotten her to like, you know, football or baseball at this point. But Jesus wants to make his home in our hearts. He wants to be comfortable there. A second metaphor that Paul uses as he's saying that he wants us to go deep is rooted. He says that you might be rooted. This is an agricultural term. We understand that, that, that you want to send down deep roots, that you want your plants and your trees to, to have a nice root system so that they can receive the nutrients and the water and everything that they need. And in the psalmist, in Psalm 1, he, he describes this. He, he says that we might be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that we would send down deep roots. A tree that has shallow roots is not normally very healthy. I just cut down two trees in my yard yesterday that I planted like when we first moved into the house. We planted a whole bunch of trees when we first moved in. Yeah, they're all dead. I've cut down every one of them at this point in time. It was like $500 worth of trees. They're all dead because they don't get enough water. Because, you know, we don't have irrigation to them and there's just no way that you're running a hose out there every day and, and they're just, they're gone. They're dried up. You could have pushed them over, you know, with your hand. There was no root system there. And Paul says, I want you to lay down deep roots. He, he gives us an agricultural metaphor. And then he says that you would be grounded. This is an architectural metaphor. Grounded, it, it speaks of a foundation. And we understand that, that if you want to go high with a building, you've got to go deep first. And you see these, these skyscrapers in the metropolitan areas. Maybe you've been to, uh, you know, certainly you've been to Portland, but, but they don't have like a lot of skyscrapers. But you go to Seattle or Chicago or New York, and I mean, they've just got these skyscrapers that are huge. And... If you could get down and look underneath that building, it would even amaze you more how deep they have to go before they go up. Even that building that they built in Redmond on the corner of Highland and Highway 97. Remember there's a little house there, I think it was like a chiropractor. They blew that thing out and then they built this like three-story building. And I remember as they were building it, driving by going, what are they building there? This hole was like, I mean, it looked like it was 20 feet deep. And they built like a three-story building. If you want to go high in your relationship with Jesus, you've got to go deep. You've got to allow Him to ground you. And Jesus talked about that when He said, man, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. Matthew chapter 7. wise man builds his house on the rock, not on the sand. You can build a house on the sand. You know, you build a sand castle, it looks cool, and then a wave comes, boom, it's gone. 
He says, build your house upon the rock. And all of these things, you guys, the dwelling, the rooting, the grounding, they all speak of depth. But do you know how each one of those is implemented into our life? It's through the Word of God. If we want Jesus to be at home in our life, it will be because we understand what's comfortable to Him, what makes Him happy. And that is found in the Word of God. If we want to be rooted, well, going back to that psalm, that we would be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, do you know how he says that happens? That we would meditate upon the Word day and night. If you go back to Matthew 7, where Jesus says that the wise man builds his house upon the rock, and you want to have a firm foundation for your life, you know how he says that happens? By hearing the Word and by doing the Word. Jesus said there. All three of those metaphors are implemented and appropriated into our life through the Word of God. If we want to go deep with Jesus, it will be by the Word. And here's the thing, you guys. This, this time right now, where you're hearing the Word, I mean, that's great. This is awesome. But this is no substitute for spending time with Jesus personally. You can tune into the radio. Hey, it's great. There's some great Bible teachers. You can go on the internet. There is an amazing amount of of studies and messages and notes and books on the internet. But none of that, none of that is a substitute for your personal time with Jesus. And I can tell you this right now. If you're not in the Word of God personally, devotionally, that you will not have the depth of relationship with Jesus that He wants you to have. That He will not be dwelling in your hearts. That you will not be rooted. That you will not be grounded. The Word of God. I can't stress it enough. It seems like every week I'm talking about that. And there's a reason for it. It's important. Man, get into the Word. And allow the Word to get into you. Well, the third thing that Paul prays for is apprehension. Apprehension. He says that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Now the word apprehension isn't there. In fact, Paul uses the word comprehend. But comprehend only gives us a half of what this word really means. Comprehension means that we would understand it with our minds. But what this word means here is that we would live it, that it would be part of reality, that we would experience it, that we would grab a hold of it. See, we can understand something mentally but not be really experiencing it personally. I can understand the concept of skydiving. I've seen it. I've watched people do it from the ground, but I've not done it and I don't plan on it. It looks scary. I, you know, I like to be on the ground unless I'm in something that will keep me afloat, you know, like a plane or something of that nature. And I don't like to jump out of those when I'm in them, you know. But I can understand the whole concept. You open the door and you leap from the plane, and then at some point you pull a string and hopefully, you know, the parachute engages itself and you, you know, float blissfully to the ground and don't break your knees. But I've never done it. I haven't experienced it. And you know what? 
Paul is praying that we would not only comprehend the love of God, but that we would apprehend the love of God. That we would experience it in our life. That we would grasp it experientially. And Paul creates a box here. He says that we might apprehend with all the saints. And isn't that a cool phrase? With all the saints. You see, being a hermit and being a Christian are really sort of oxymorons. Because we are called to fellowship. We're called to community. You see the early church, they got together and they broke bread and they prayed and they fellowshiped and they studied the Word. And you know, if you're lonely as a believer, it's it's because you're not taking advantage of those fellowship opportunities, those opportunities for community where you can get together and, and you can engage with other people. We don't have to be lonely. Loneliness is a it's probably one of the most depressing words in the English language. It's it's so dark, it's depressing, and yet we don't have to be lonely. We choose to be that because the church is here for communities that so that we might have fellowship with one another. Paul says, with all the saints, I hope that, that you're experiencing the love of God with all the saints. And man, we're going to be starting home groups here next, uh, in October. I encourage you guys to get involved in those. To, to get together with other believers, to spend time eating and praying together and fellowshipping and talking about what the Lord is showing you. There, there is really nothing like that. With all the saints, he says, And then he creates this box. He says the width, the length, the depth, the height. He creates a box. He says, man, I want you to understand the parameters of God's love. I want you to be able to look in and say, okay, this is God's love. Man, this is amazing. Here it is. Here's a nice little box. But then he says, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. So in other words, I want you to to know this box. I want you to see this box. But then know this, you can't put God in a box. You can't put His love in a box. You'll never understand it. But I want you to grasp it. I want you to experience it at least to some extent. But then know this. You can't. You won't. It's impossible. But keep looking. Keep entering in to the love of God. The fourth thing that Paul prays for, found there at the end of verse 19, is fullness. He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's John 10.10 basically. That we would have life and have it more abundantly. You see, Jesus came not that we would have a mediocre life. Not that we would have like status quo. Not that we would say, okay, where's kind of, you know, the, the barometer of what I can get away with? Where's the C average? And a lot of you, I'm sure, that's how you sort of floated through high school and college. You know, what's the minimum I can do to get by, to pass, so that I can get my diploma? But Jesus doesn't have that for us in our walk with Him. He says, man, I want you to excel. I want you to be filled with the fullness of Me. Not just mediocrity, but absolute fullness. Now, obviously, we can't contain all of God in this human vessel. Colossians tells us that Jesus embodied all the fullness of the Godhead 
in Himself. But we can't do that. We have a capacity that can be filled. Just like a bucket. If you took a bucket down to the Pacific Ocean and you dipped it into the water, it, it could be, it could be filled. And there would come a point where it would begin to spill over. It would be over capacity. And you'd be full of the fullness of the Pacific Ocean. And that's what Paul is praying. That you would be filled with the fullness of God as much as you can handle. And guess what? As, as earthly, fleshly sinners who are struggling, we leak. The fullness of God just sort, sort of leaks out of us. But we can continually be filled with Him. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, be constantly, perpetually filled with the presence of God, with the Holy Spirit. He says, I want you to be full of the fullness of God, which begs the question, what is my life full of? And, and that's a hard question to answer. I, I don't know. And you need diagnosis, just like when you take your vehicle into the mechanic and hopefully... He gives you a diagnosis. He's got, you know, those machines. Don't go to the mechanic that doesn't have those. They just guess. They're like, yeah, it sounds like a radiator problem to me. And they take that out and give you a new radiator and then, you know, it doesn't help. I've been down that road. Have, have a diagnostic done. And you know what? We need to have a diagnosis of our life. And it's very simple, I think. I think we can ask ourselves a few questions to know what is my life full of. How about your thoughts? What is the first thought on your mind in the morning? What is the last thought on your mind as you lay down for the night? That gives you an idea of what your passion is. Is it, you know, sports? Is it your kids' activities? Is it, is it school? Is it your career? Is it your business? Is it recreation, hunting? You know, how many guys right now are just, you know, the first thing they think of when they get in the morning, oh man, I can't wait to get that buck. I've been having my eye. And, and the last thing they think of is the, 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 that buck. And oh man, I can't. And it's the passion of your life or, or race car driving or motorcycles or clothes, shopping, your kids, what people think of you. I mean, there's all these things. That gives you a really good idea of what is the master passion of your life. How about your extra time? Well, you don't even know. I have no extra time. Hey, we all have extra time. What are you doing with it? You might not have a lot of it, but you're doing something with it. And that, that time that you have, that tells you a lot about what your passion is. How about your money? Well, if I don't have extra time, I certainly don't have extra money. You don't even know. I, I got no extra money. I think I understand. But we all have extra money because we buy stuff we don't need. We all have it. And what is it that we're buying with our extra money? What is it that we're spending it on? It tells us a lot about what our passion is, about what we're full of. In verses 20 and 21, Paul concludes the prayer. He says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, 
abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Paul closes this prayer in this section about the wealth that we have. He closes it with worship. It's almost as if Paul realizes, look, I don't know everything to pray. I don't know all of your needs. I I fall short in that. But here's what I do know is that God can meet all of your needs. In fact, He can meet needs that you don't even know you have. He can do things exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you can ever ask or even think of. That's what our God can do. Our God is not incapable. He's not impotent. He's omnipotent. Omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He, he is not broke, as some would have us believe, that God needs your money. God isn't broke. God, God has all resources at His disposal. And He can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Paul said, I don't know what to pray for in totality, but here's what I do know, is that God can meet all of your needs. And I want you to understand that. And then he closes and he says, To him be glory in the church, both now and forever to all generations, by Christ Jesus. Amen. Paul desires that Jesus would get the glory in the church. Because this is, this is something that you need to understand. That Jesus is the best thing about you. He's the best thing about you. Now you might think it's your personality, your, your magnanimous personality. People are just drawn to you. You think that's the best thing I got going. You, you might think it's your looks. Looking around, I don't know if any of us fit that bill, but you know, you might think it's your looks. You, you, you might think that, that it's your bank account. You might think that it's your skills or your talents. You might think it's that you're a hard worker. You might think it's your education. And none of those things are bad. But none of those things describe what's best about you. What's best about you, what's best about me, is Jesus. And that's what people need. They don't need your personality. They don't need your skills. They don't need your talents. They don't need your resources. They don't need your education. What people need is Jesus. He's the best thing about us. And He's the best thing about our church too. And you know what? Paul says, I want Jesus to receive the glory. And I'll tell you what, in the church right now, there's a lot of other things that receive the glory. A lot of other things that people begin to glory in regarding the church. People glory in the pastor. People glory in the worship. People glory in the building. Oh, you got to see our building. It's amazing. We've got this, you know, the, the children's ministry. I mean, it's like Disneyland. When you walk in there, it's just amazing. And, and you know what? I would love to have a new building. This building kind of bugs me sometimes. We're, we're sort of limited here. You walk in right off the street, right into the sanctuary. There's a lot of things I don't like about this building. But you know what? We could build an amazing building. And I've seen amazing buildings. I, I've been to a lot of them. 
You go to Crossroads Church up in Vancouver, Bill Ritchie's church. That's an amazing building. It's, it's awesome. Go to other churches and water features, the, the sanctuary slopes down to this amazing lighting system. You know, the, the, the projector works. Things, things work. The, just, they work, you know, that nothing rattles and shakes and, you know, it's just awesome. And everything's like this well-oiled machine. And I can covet that. I, I do. But even if we have that, and maybe we will someday, maybe we'll have an amazing building someday, I hope that we have a bigger and better building. But even when we do, listen, it will not be the best thing about us. Jesus will be. It won't be our programs, people glory in programs. Oh, their youth ministry, it's amazing. Their drug and alcohol ministry, their men's ministry, their women's ministry. It's not the best thing about us. Jesus is. Jesus should be the one that receives the glory. And whatever we're doing, He's the best thing about us. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank You for this time in Your Word, Lord. It's just amazing how You speak to us right where we're at. And God, I pray that that whatever it is that You've ministered to us and spoken to us this morning, God, that You would continue to do that. That, Lord, we would be doers of Your Word and not hearers only. God, continue to work these truths and have them produce fruit in our life. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County, you may email us at info at calvarycrookcounty.com. Or if you would like to write to us, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.